This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Jean-Jacques Hannault's film Quest for Fire, for which Anthony Burgess invented the languages of the cavemen characters. The film is based on the novel by J.H. Rosny and is set in a Paleolithic Europe following the Ulam, a tribe of cavemen who possess a small flame they use to start larger fires. They do not know how to make fire, and when their flame is extinguished they begin a quest to find a new source of the fire they need to survive. It stars Ron Perlman, Ray Dawn Chong and Everett McGill. To celebrate the anniversary of Quest for Fire's release, the Burgess Foundation's Will Carr talks to Peter Elliott, who played Mika, one of the Ulam tribe. He was also the movement coach for the film. Quest for Fire was Peter's first film, and over the course of more than 50 credits, he has become the film industry's leading expert in movement direction and choreography, especially of animal and non-human characters. He specialises in primate behaviour, and this work can be seen in films such as Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Gorillas in the Mist, and The Island of Dr. Moreau. His choreography often works hand-in-hand with visual effects, and he has collaborated with the Jim Henson Creature Shop and SFX master Rick Baker. He is currently in pre-production on the fantasy film The Legend of Ochi, which tells the story of a young girl who learns how to communicate with animals. Well, welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, this is part of our celebrations of the 40th anniversary of the film Quest for Fire, which is being re-released this year. And it's a film that uh, Anthony Burgess took a big part in. And Peter's kindly agreed to join us to tell us about his experiences making the film. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't realise they're re-releasing Yeah, that, that's, that's what's really happening. Yeah, it's this, uh, there's a new anniversary edition being put out, and we... Thought we'd take this opportunity to um, well to think about the film and to to find out more about it and um, and which is well which is why we're delighted to to have you with us. Um, I wondered, Peter, if we could begin by just finding out a bit about you. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your career as an actor and as a movement director. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I trained as a, a method actor at um, in England at a school called East Fifteen. And being trained as a method actor sort of had a um, an important um, factor in it, I guess. Um, so I did I did the usual a bit of um, you know theatre and education, some Shakespeare, a little bit of everything. But then I auditioned for a film called uh, Greystoke, the Tarzan movie, um, and I auditioned to play one of the apes. Um, now to cut a long story short, what was happening? Um, they were they'd auditioned people all around the world, and they auditioned. Um, uh, the auditions were held in London, and they cast. They decided London was a really good place to um, to find the the cast. So they cast about forty people, and the plan was we'd rehearse for about three weeks, then they'd cut it down to twenty people, and that would be our eight cast um, to start rehearsing for filming. So after, um, after this uh, three weeks rehearsal was over, um, they'd done a test film in Los Angeles with, um, with a mime artist in, the, um, in a chimp costume. And um, they were really not very happy with the results. Um, so they kind of liked what I was doing in London, 
I was sort of, as well as the rehearsal, going to London Zoo and doing research of my own as well. And they, um, they asked if I could go to, um, to Los Angeles, which, um, which, you know, I was 21, just out of drama school. So it was kind of quite exciting to be off to Hollywood um, to put somebody else in the costume to try and decide whether it was the costume or the person in it or a mixture of the two, you know, to try and uh, narrow down what the problem was. So um, I went over to Los Angeles where I, um, I met uh, a special effects um, costume designer called uh, Carlo Rambaldi. And he, he worked on refitting the costume and doing lots of work on it, etc. cetera. Um, and I was meant to be there uh, for about one or two weeks. But we did a new test film, which they were really, really happy with. And um, I ended up being in um, in Hollywood for on and off for nearly two years. So just working on this on this project on you know a bit, yeah a bit yeah funny. what what happened is um, they asked if I would um, would be in basically they put the film on hold and they asked if I would um, be in charge of the R and D. Well, of course, being an actor, I said, uh, yes, yes, I can, I can do all the R&D. I, had, I absolutely had no idea what R&D actually was. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had done a little bit, though, going to London Zoo and looking at the apes and chimps and so on. Um, how did that work? Were you observing their behaviours and copying them? What was your process? Yes, I was, I was. And, and also there was, a mime, uh, there was somebody called Desmond Jones who also worked on Quest of Fire, um, and so we were doing some of that in rehearsals. I was just sort of adding a bit to my um, to what I was learning by going to you. You cannot be looking at the real animal, you know. It's just, but um, but so I I was doing R and D. I just didn't know it was called R and D. I guess. <laughs> so I literally had to phone people up in London, and because um, of course this was before mobiles and uh, internet and everything. And, uh, and found out what R and D was. So, um, so I, so from then on, it's funny. I had my own office at Burbank Studios, um, and set off on this project of doing research and development for Greystoke. Um, I guess um, not knowing how it was usually done was actually the best thing that could have happened. Um, because what they usually used to do, this is, oh, we're talking further back than, I think this would be about 1979, 78, 79. And um, what usually happened then, when they had anything, monsters, creatures, animals to choreograph, they just left it usually to the stunt coordinator or bring in a dance choreographer. And, you know, so, sort of wondered why it didn't really come up to scratch. But not knowing that and being a method actor i just sort of thought well i've got to become a chimp i see so so you're in you're in hollywood and establishing yourself as a as a chimp and but um but quest for fire came along uh what what happened then well because greystoke greystoke got put um got put on hold so i i actually went to the oklahoma primate center and studied the chimp washo and I studied all their movement, their sounds, their behavior. I, 
almost tried to socially integrate into a group, but that's, um, that was kind of foolish, never really worked. But so as soon as it was put on hold, I came back to London and within a matter of a week or two, um, this, these auditions came up for Quest for Fire, um, which was just so lucky. The timing was just so lucky for me. I'd literally just been trying to become a, a chimp for the last two years. So um, I walked into the auditions and, um, and we were begin, being given certain instructions on try and walk like this and do this. Well, of course, I just did a bipedal chimpanzee and, um, and chimp sounds that I sort of, I didn't know, um, I didn't know all the things I know now, but I just thought, well, they're after something that sounded fairly ape-like. So I just, basically, I did a bipedal chimpanzee. And Jean-Jacques, who was at the audition, just instantly said, that's what I want. I see. So, so Jean-Jacques kind of had, had quite a clear vision for his for his Stone Age people because they're not chimps in the film, of course, are they? They're, no, no, of primitive course. man. But uh, but your interpretation of a bipedal chimpanzee fitted yeah. quite well with what he had in mind. Yeah. Well, when I say bipedal chimpanzee, I knew it had to be human. So I, I pushed it. I just used traces of a chimp to give me that slight swagger, and um, I just used the. Um, sort of breath rhythm and its body shape. And so so it was still pretty human. But Jean-Jacques, um, whether he knew that that's what he wanted or just knew it's what he wanted when he saw it, I, I'll never know, I guess. But as soon as he saw it, he, um, he thought, yeah, that's what I want. And, w- and what did you think about the, well, the idea of Quest of Fire, the concept of Quest of Fire, because it's quite an unusual premise um, you know, the, uh, following the travails of these primitive people, um, what, what what did you make of it as a as a prospect for a film? Uh, I I was really excited by it actually because I'd I'd always been quite interested in um, in non not in mime as such, but in non verbal storytelling, body language, and etc. And of course, I'd learned by mixing with the chimps that that it's all communication is about body language. They don't have theories about body language. They just have body language. So I just, I just, I was really excited by the whole idea of this, um, of this non-verbal storytelling and the whole concept of the movie. I just, I thought it sounded absolutely fantastic. So this business about storytelling in the film becomes well, one of its most distinctive features, really, because mm. um, in Quest for Fire, there's a, a unique Stone Age language, I suppose I can, can call it that, which is a combination, really, of words or, or sense sounds and gesture and movement. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit of, about that, because um, th- this is where our particular interest in this comes in, where um, Anthony Burgess worked on the linguistic elements and Desmond Morris worked to an extent on the movement elements. Um, I wondered what your memories were of of this process. Sure, um, Anthony Burgess' language was was just fascinating, and I, I'm particularly bad at languages. And um, so the little learning that we did with him, I found really exciting because he was so enthusiastic about it. Um, and so, so I sort of threw myself into learning the language, as did John Jack and everybody. 
Um, that was, you know, he was a fantastic teacher, actually, um, Anthony. He really was. Um, it's quite funny. Uh, Jean-Jack always said he, he understood every word of the language. Um, I, I, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I think he did. But the, the, um, the cast were quite mischievous on the film. Um, we did often sleep, uh, throw in our own bits of dialogue that... Um, Right, they weren't necessarily, you know, pure Burgess language, right? Uh, Yeah, well, no, they were pure uh, Burgess language, but they weren't quite what was in the script. I tried to think of one. Oh, I can think of one, but um, we'd have to be careful how we phrase it. The phrase that was used several times, I don't know if they ever ended up in the the movie, but was um, Meg for Lockholt. Um, which Meg meant big, for lack was referred to copulation, okay. <laughs> and and alt um, referred to up. <laughs> so I think you can you can work out what we were actually saying. <laughs> Meg for lack alt was was usually when something had gone terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. Okay. So, uh, so the, 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 sorry, go on, please. Go I'm on. not sure if that's broadcastable. <laughs> no, it absolutely is because one of the anecdotes, well, it is in itself, but one of the anecdotes that Jean Jacques Arnaud says has about the film is that mm-hmm. the cast and crew learned the language and spoke it on set, and, you know, it, it was this sort of functioning language. And we know yeah, we quite, did. Yeah. And so, well, it's fascinating to hear that that actually happened and, and indeed that you're able to, you know, to express yourselves in, uh, you know... I'm, I'm amazed. I still remember that. Right? Move for knockout. <laughs> I, don't know where it's, I don't know where it's stored up there somewhere. <laughs> but you, you're, um, the way you, where you came to it was from the, the, from the movement, from the movement of the... People and the and the chimps, I suppose. So, could you tell us a bit about that and and how it's interacted with the with the special language? Sure. Um, well, it was quite interesting because um, Desmond Morris, um, of course, he was very much um, putting forward the um, more gesticular, the gestures, and certain types of behaviour. Um, now, I found. Fa- I- I, I found that what I could bring to that, um, obviously movement-wise, um, was um, was a quality of movement, a way of moving, and, and keeping all that absolutely natural, um, uh, including right down not just to the way they walk, but the way the arms moved, the way they breathed. And, um, but then I also found that some of the language, some of the some of the language of chimps um, helped fill out. See, the thing, the thing about um, storytelling and um, apes and early man, the difference, I think, really is, is that they're living in the now. Whereas, um, like all the other animals on the planet, that are living in the now rather than the past or the future. And, and so when you're living in the now, the emotional connection to what you're feeling and doing, um, as well as the uh, gestures of communication, um, how you feel about that. Um, And I found I was able to insert lots of chimp sounds 
that um, filled out all the gaps between the gestures and the language and helped convey the emotion as well as just the words. Like um, my favourite one, which, which became used throughout the movie, was what's called a cough grunt, um, which is just a sound... <coughs> Um, I don't know if you if you've seen the movie recently. Yes, yes, but absolutely. that's that yes, was used yes. all the time as a as an expletive. Um, it's you know somebody. Um, uh, it could be used mildly. Just it could be it could be used as a form of excitement, <laughs> and uh, it could be used angrily, <laughs> uh, which is uh, which is also used, and also. Um, one of the famous moments in the film was actually um, the first ever joke, um, and I used the chi- I, I used the chimpanzee laugh, and I taught it to um, to you know Everett and Ron and Amir and um, and and it it found its very own moment. I try to remember. I think. One of them, I can't remember who, I, one of them drops a gourd or something on the other one's head from a tree. That's right, yeah. So, uh, and Ron, thinks it's very funny. Yeah, uh, well, uh, Ron is, is the victim, um, and uh, Radon Chung find this, finds this hilarious. But I suppose, no, one, no, I think one of the... Um, and then later in the film, um, he, he does it to another of the, ah, of the group that's, that's and, and it's sort of the invention of of comedy you know the invention uh, yeah of yeah exactly um, so uh, but their laughter in that in that moment is um is the chimpanzee laugh that, yeah, that yeah exactly. and they even did the chimpanzee laugh face <laughs> right which right. is covering your teeth um with your top lip and showing your bottom teeth and um you know, and getting that sound, they, you can tell it's a laugh. But it's a laugh from the body, from the, you know, not 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 from the, uh, it's not an intellectual laugh, is it? Right, well, perhaps not. No, I think I'm doing it no. now. Um, <laughs> so, it's quite contagious. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, so you, I mean, you, you were obviously in the film yourself, and were you, so were you involved in... Um, uh, how would you, how would you describe it as the kind of choreographer as the um, yeah I mean I started um, I started with Desmond Jones and then I think I don't know whether Desmond have another commitment or something but then I ended up sort of doing doing all of that, all of that but anyway I don't think that's important um, so I um, I initially was just going to be one of the cast and uh, Jean Jacques liked what I was doing very much. And so he wrote the, he was trying to write the character of Mikra into the film. Um, but I ended up um, teaching the body movement and, and sounds and, 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 you know, teaching, teaching all the, being the movement coach, basically, and choreographing um, so many of the cast. We had a lot of cast, even the Kazams. We had what, probably, I think we had 14, 300 pound wrestlers. Who, who all had to be taught? So this is the this is the Kazam tribe. The, That's the, the Kazams. Yeah, right, I see. Okay. Um, and or in Canada we had you know I think I think I must have taught probably well over a hundred people, um, and so 
rather than the character developing through the movie, what tended to happen, because I was so busy choreographing, um, every time um, Jean-Jacques got to a bit of that he thought, oh, I really need something here, he got me to, I was all over the place. Can you do this bit over there? Can you do, so I sort of became a go-to, um, a go-to character rather than having a through line through the movie, which is what he originally wanted. But it, it, it wouldn't have been possible. I, I, you know, there was too many people to, um, to teach on the, on the movement side of things. Well, it was quite an ambitious production in all sorts of ways. I mean, there's, there's the large cast, as you described, and the, the many locations, you know, in, uh, filming in Kenya and Canada and northern Scotland, um, and also um, some use of uh, quite large animals. Uh, I wondered, wondered if you could tell us a bit about your, well, about your memories of the set. I can certainly tell. Have you... Have you ever heard of the mammoth the, the mammoth story? I think you should tell it to us. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, the mammoth story was... Um, John Jack was quite mischievous. He was fantastic to work with. I loved working with John Jack. But he, he, he was quite mischievous in his methods sometimes. And in fact, I don't know if this was a John Jack thing. But the situation was we had, um, we had 12 or 14 uh, wrestlers all cast in England. Uh, 300 pound guys all carrying clubs and cows tails which were meant to be weapons um and these were meant to be a cannib cannibalistic tribe so these were weapons and um i was also dressed as a kazam being much smaller in stature i'm only five foot four tall um i was meant to be the little one at the back um now the this we were told that there was this was going to be a controlled stampede which um, sounded a little, little bit of an oxymoron at the time. Um, it was, I'd never heard of a controlled stampede. Uh, <laughs> and, but um, so we had, there was a, so we were stood as a group, about 12 or 14 of us. And in front of us, about 100, about 90 yards away, I would say, was a, was a massive tent, um, a circus tent, with the side all open. And, um, and then there was, um, uh, and then behind us, about forty yards behind us, was um, was about fourteen elephants dressed as mammoths, right? Um, <laughs> complete with hairy costumes and mammoth tusks, etc. Now, elephants don't particularly like being dressed as mammoths, um, so they were already quite agitated, um, and um, along the alongside of this mammoth tent. There was um, this barbed wire fence, which, so who was the first AD? Oh, David Bracknell. David Bracknell, the first AD, came up and dis explained to us, the camera was just over to our left, the tent in front of us, barbed wire fence down the side of the tent. Explained to us that there was going to be a controlled stampede and that we needed to run towards the tent. When we get close to the tent, we clear to the right and the elephant stresses mammoths will go into the tent. It's just like that sounds, that sounds yeah. straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds so. It sounded straightforward. Um, so I brought up. I said, "Well, David, can we take down the barbed wire fence that runs all along this down the side, um, <laughs> down the side of the uh, tent?" And he said, "No, no, sorry, we can't do that. We promised the farmers we're not gonna. We won't touch any of the fences." And it was like, "Well, what happens if?" He said, "No, don't worry. 
what we've done is we've practiced so many times with these elephants of running them and the place they like to go is because they as soon as they're running them they'll just want to go in the tent so you just run to the tent and clear to the right the elephant's going to go in the tent and he starts david starts walking away and then says oh peter i nearly forgot um jean jack wants you you're the little one at the back so as the elephants um or the mammoths run towards you if you could f- um trip over <laughs> Okay. And then look backwards and see they're getting close and run like hell to try and catch up with, with the rest of the team. This is like, okay, yeah, yeah, um, I can do that. So I don't know if there is such a thing as a controlled stampede, which I found a little strange at the time. But if there is such a thing, I don't think you start it with a shotgun. So um, we're all ready to go and carrying our, clouds, our clubs and cows' tails. And all of a sudden, bang! We said, oh, no, first of all, they said action. So we've set off, and they've told us, you go on action. Don't worry, the elephants will have a separate queue. Right. <laughs> so that's what we found out was the separate queue. Uh, queue was bang! So we're running along, we're running along. So I've looked behind me and thought, my God, <laughs> I didn't realize they could run that fast. So I'm shouting forward, run faster, run faster. So I did my falling over bit, as told, fell over, got up, and then suddenly realized, oh, my God, these things are gaining on us rapidly. So I'm running like hell, running, running, running. The guys in front of me have looked behind and suddenly seen how that these things, nobody told us elephants can run about 30 miles an hour, <laughs> even when they're dressed as mammoths. So we're running. So we decide this is going wrong. Clear to the right. We cleared it. They followed us. Go to the left. They followed us. Go to the right. Everywhere we want. They just followed us. This is like, oh, my God. And by now, the guys, because I've done my falling over, all the wrestlers, um, uh, quite away in front of me. By now, I'm literally, I could hear them breathing beside me. And I'm, I'm running like hell. And the, they've all helped each other over the barbed wire fence because, of course, it's a little bit like a wrestling ring. And they're all laughing, thinking this is hilarious. So I'm running towards them, thinking, and all of a sudden you see the look on their faces completely change because these elephants are not going to stop for a barbed wire fence. So I literally ended up, I dived over the fence. The the elephants went through the barbed wire fence. Everybody scattered like mad. And um, I was literally ended up almost amongst their legs, rolling out to the side. And then the elephants went through the makeup tent, um, through the wardrobe tent, (laughs) and disappeared up into the highlands of Scotland, dressed as mammoths. (laughs) So, um, and of course, and the shot was completely useless because we'd been rehearsing all this, uh, all this, uh, you know, primeval running stuff. And um, as soon as they realised these mammoths were were catching up on us, they, uh, the cows' tails and the clubs have gone into the air, and um, and all these three hundred pound wrestlers suddenly turned into Linford Christie and <laughs> sprinting like a modern sprinter. So I can't remember exactly how much mammoths... I don't think anything of the stampede actually got in the movie. I well, yeah, yeah, there, I mean, there are... 
<laughs> the, the mammoths do remain in the film, but yes, there isn't. Well, there isn't a barbed wire fence, and there isn't. <laughs> there isn't. There isn't the panic you described. Yeah, um, I think. I, yeah, I think the stampede. Everybody was in a little bit of shock, and I just don't think we got anything usable out of it. And it, but it was. It's very funny now. Yes, well, I'm glad everyone was unscathed. And there, yeah, are, yeah. there are a number of comic elements, really, in the film, I think. I mean, we talked about the, the stone being dropped on each other's head and... You know, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, you know, falling over in, in front of the mammoths. I mean, might have, yeah, been, yeah. might have been a funny idea. I mean, the reality yeah. of it, perhaps, perhaps not so much. But uh, one of the things that strikes me about Quest for Fire is that it's a, it seems to be a genuine attempt to convey a, a range of emotion um, mm, uh, ta- taking place in this very primitive society, um, mm. I, w- I wondered if that was your perspective, and you know if, if that was part of the part of the experience, I suppose, of being on the film. It was, it was, and again, um, uh, it's funny, but I think um, I think that's something that very much came. Uh, well, I certainly got from uh, researching the chimps. Chimps are pure, and I just think with Anthony's language and. Um, the whole, I think everybody did get this concept. I don't know whether we actually, how much we actually talked about it, but there was this concept of everything being very much in the now, which means you wear your emotions on your sleeve. And, um, and, and that also makes all the communication for the audience so much easier to understand because with the context of what's happening, and the emotion happening all at the same time and being so so undisguised and so open i think it i think it it helped people feel very emotional uh, in the performances and i think it i think it drew the audience in to the emotional context of the film rather than it just being like a silent movie i think it had a lot of um a lot of a lot of emotion as well as language and story. And that might be one of the reasons why Quest for Fire, well, why it's being re-released while it's lasted this long. Uh, I mean, well, thinking about it now, um, what, mm. do, what, do you think of, what do you think of that project? You've gone on to have a very long and distinguished career in, in, oh, many, um, well, in, in many films, but play, playing kind of similar roles and all that sort mm. of thing. But I, I wondered if you, um, where Quest for Fire sits in the context of, um, of films well, like that. Well, Quest. I have a I have a few of my favourite movies, <clears throat> and um, and Quest for Fire is definitely one of them. It was sort of my first ever movie that, and I ended up doing a massive job on it, which I which I really loved. But um, I'd done I'd been in Hollywood for nearly two years, but I still hadn't actually done a movie. And and Quest for Fire, I, I was just for me was just such an absolutely wonderful experience. And do you know what? One of the things I think, I think um, Ron had the same experience much later. Oh, and Ron was in this. Yeah, because Ron was in the same movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. With, with Marlon Brando. Um, yeah. I was the movement director on that as well. And, um, and within, there were some problems on it. And the director was, was fired in the first couple of weeks. And somebody called John Frankenheimer um, was brought in, and um, Marlon Brando said he um, said he he was going to step away from the movie, which would have been the kiss of death for him. And um, one of his questions was, um, 
who's choreographing, who's teaching all the creatures how to move and everything, because he, he had a fear it was just going to end up all looking ridiculous. And um, and he was he was told that Ron had been in Quest for Fire and that um, the movement coach from Quest for Fire was going to be doing the um, all the movement work on the island of Dr. Moreau. And Marlon Brando said, wow, okay, I'm in. Quest for Fire was, was my very favorite movie, which is like, wow. Which oh, is great. Marlon Brando, it was my, I can't remember I, whether he said one of my favorite movies. I think he actually said it was his favorite movie. So um, that was like, wow. Well, how extraordinary and unexpected, and yes, mm. yeah. So, so it clearly had had this uh, currency, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, among yeah, um, among. But some, I enjoyed oh. the whole experience as well. I mean, I was I was still quite new to the business, and I was sort of thrown in at the deep end. I ended up I was choreographing fights and working stunts, you know, with the stunt guys, and I, I, I had so much to do it do on it. I think, I think if I'd have um, if I'd have known more, it would have been much harder. Right, right. I see. You know, you know what I mean. You just, yes. you just do it, and it was very it felt a very exciting project. So after Quest for Fire, you went on. I mean, your your Tarzan film uh, happened ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Great, Greystoke happened. Greystoke, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and later, there's films such as The Island of Doctor Moreau. Um, and and Gorillas in the Mist, I think, was. Yes. Was that after I think that might have been after Greystoke. I can't remember. You know, I have to. I have to look at my CV nowadays. So there's a. Um, I suppose I'm just trying to put say Quest for Fire in a, in a kind of context of mm. of, um, of of films, including you know, including animals, including primitive humans, that sort of mm. thing. And I wondered if you felt because it seems to me that it's it wasn't the first film that attempted to do do that, but it seems to be one of the most authentic attempts to do that. And I wondered if you felt that was an accurate assessment. Um, I definitely think it is. Yeah. Um... If you ask an anthropologist, I think, um, I, I'm you know, there's a lot of um holes in the anthropology of it, but um, but as an authentic, I mean, I, I think the actors were did a fantastic job. Um, I mean, at the beginning, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of ape faces made, and I mean, the and um, and I think the more we got away from getting away from from actual apes and more into um more into hum the human animal um i i think um i think is what what we discovered and i think it's what what um what was portrayed it was us before i mean i think people forget that um every single thing that we have out there is a result of collective intelligence we <laughs> You can't fly to the moon. I can't fly to the moon. I can't even make a cup, you know. And, and I think it brings us down back to to what real human beings were like. And I think it portrayed them very well. I, I think it put us back into the real world as animals, um, which I think is it's somewhat a shame that we we can't get back back a little closer to that now. Tell us a little bit about what you're what you're working on at the moment and, what, and what's happening next for you. Okay. Uh, oh, one film. One film I did do um, 
after that, which I also, which I took a lot from, I did a film called Missing Link, which I also paid the um, sort of Australopithecus, uh, I was the only actor in the movie, but it um, it was a great, I always managed to use a lot of stuff learned from, from Quest of Fire. Um, it's funny, when you talk about movement directing, um, it's, it's come a long way in the last um, in the last forty years. Um, it's no longer it's no longer quite so separate from acting. It's it's more integrated. Um, they're one and the same thing. Where what, so movement work shouldn't stand out as something separate from the acting, which it sort of almost did or did for uh, before. Um, so and I found that. Um, you can use a similar method um, no matter what you're trying to bring to life on the screen. This next thing is, um, is a movie where the, um, where the lead character is a small monkey-like, uh, um, a fancy creature, but a small monkey-like creature, which is all going to be done um, with puppeteering. It's all going to be done uh, with puppeteering. Well, old school um with puppeteers with rod puppets um with a rod puppet and um and I'll be choreo- I'll be choreographing all of that um and so and it's a fantastic little creature and it's a great little script um and but and it's great to get back to some of the old school methodologies you know um I did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that was a similar thing, getting back to some of the old, you know, away from CGI, which can you imagine what um, what they'd have done with Quest for Fire nowadays? We'd have had CGI, we'd have had CGI saber-toothed tigers all over the place and the mammoths would have definitely been CGI. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of nice to get back to a um, quite a sophisticated project um, where the lead character is going to be done all in camera and um, and old school, basically. And that's what I'll be doing next. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I hope it comes off, Peter. Maybe, yeah, yeah, me too. Um, thank you so much for, for talking to us about Quest of Fire and about mm, your career. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's really brought it to life. certainly has for me. And mm. um, this, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is part of our kind of larger celebration of Quest for Fire, the film. Uh, uh, which is going to be re-released later this year, we believe. So um, I hope everyone sees it and sees you in it, Peter. And thanks once again for taking part in the podcast today. My pleasure. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?